Um, so this is Norman and, uh, I'm sorry, Gordon and Norma Yeager. You want to put that picture up there, Nicholas, for me? You got that? I think I put it on there, right? There they are, right there. Look at that gorgeous couple right there. They uh, had, were married on May 26, 1939, just hours after her high school graduation. The same day that she graduated, they got, they got I guess that's how they did it back then. I don't know. Uh, and uh, they spent the next 72 years together. Their children said that they were absolutely inseparable. They recalled that outside of Gordon working a nine-to-five job, uh, they did everything together. They just loved being together. And on October, uh, in October of 2011, however, they were in a car accident just outside their hometown of State Center, Iowa. And they were sent to the hospital with, uh, with multiple injuries. Uh, they were separated in different rooms. Uh, at first, but they kept asking about each other, so the hospital staff ended up uh, putting them in the same room together where they could lay side by side holding hands. In the middle of the afternoon, Gordon at age 94 passed away, and after he had stopped breathing and was declared deceased, the hospital staff could not understand why in the world they were still getting a, a pulse on the vital signs monitor. And after some time of trying to figure it out, they realized that the pulse that they were getting from him was actually the heartbeat of his wife that was still holding his hand. And uh, they were amazed by this, and, and she, she passed away an hour later. Um, and on their passing, their daughter recalled that neither of them would have wanted to be without, each other, without the other. Uh, I couldn't figure out how it was going to work, so we were very blessed, honestly, that they went this way. Now, we love to hear stories like that. We love to hear stories of faithful marriage for, for so long. It, it points to this, uh, uh, this vision of marriage that's idyllic and, and idealistic. And I mean, who on their wedding day wouldn't dream of spending 74 plus years with their spouse and, and end up essentially going at the same time like, like they did. And sadly, however, the way that marriage plays out in our culture and our society doesn't always work out uh, in, in that way. Uh, in the United States alone, 50% of first-time marriages end in divorce. And then subsequent marriages after that have a much, much higher uh, rate of divorce. And contrary to popular belief, living together before marriage does not uh, guarantee success in marriage. In fact, people who cohabited together before they were married have a significantly higher rate of divorce than those who did not live together before they were, uh, they were married. And outside of the staggering divorce rates, our culture has cheapened and it's gutted the institution of marriage by redefining it. Um, with the advent of o Obergfell versus Hodges in 2015, uh, which allowed for same-sex marriages in the U.S., marriage has lost its, its meaning entirely except to be that of a social construct. On top of that, our culture has become much more perverse in its acceptance of non-traditional forms of sexuality that operate outside of and against traditional and, and biblical marriage. Monogamy is seen by many sociologists now as uh, contrary to human nature. 
And in fact, there are some uh, sociologists that I read this week that said that uh, marriage is good for support and economic security, but uh, monogamy is by no means how we were uh, how we were created to be. And in order to be happy and sexually healthy, then marriages ought to be open. Polyamory, which is where there's more than one per, more than two people in a relationship together, is uh, is gaining steam. And so as a culture, we're, we're heading uh, very quickly to sexual anarchy where anything and everything goes at the expense of the institution of marriage. If marriage today is viewed with such apathy, then why in the world do we find stories like the Jaegers so impressive and so idealistic? In our text today, the Apostle Paul teaches us that the institution of marriage is not a social or a cultural construct. Marriage, which is the union of one biological man and one biological woman in a monogamous lifetime relationship, is rooted as part of the created order established by God. And so regardless of what the world thinks about marriage and does with marriage in the church, we have the duty to glorify God by ordering our marriages according to his word. And so as we continue this journey today to become the church that Jesus wants us to be, we must become individuals that Jesus wants us to be. And for most of us, in order to be the individual that Jesus calls us to be, we have to have the marriage that Jesus has called us to have. So today, we're going to look at the why of marriage, and then once we establish that, the why, we're going to look at the how. And so, three things we need to look at today. Is the, fir- the first is, is that we need to understand the mystery of marriage. Understand the mystery of marriage. When it comes to uh, the biblical vision of marriage, it's, it's, it's important to uh, start with why before the how. And it's important because the why provides the context of the how. And quite honestly, uh, our, our, our uh, text for today in its entirety has been uh, quite controversial, uh, really forever, but even more so in our contemporary thought. Many evangelicals today even reject uh, the how as it's written and instead settle for what I think is a, is a twisted and misguided understanding of Scripture. We'll dive into that controversy here in a bit, but for now, I think it's paramount to protect our marriages uh, from an unbiblical ordering by putting marriage in its proper context within God's creative plan. And so with that, we're going to start at the bottom of this text, and then we're going to work our way up. So after nine verses of explaining gender roles within a a marriage, um, which we're going to get to here in a minute, Verse 31, Paul actually quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when he says, uh, well, for the, to lay the groundwork here for God's purpose. He writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's an awfully odd text to quote when you're trying to get to the ground level of the purpose of marriage. Looking at the context of Genesis chapter 2, though, is helpful to track his thought process. Uh, Genesis 2 is all about zooming in very 
closely to the creation of man and woman, Adam and Eve, uh, our, our, our ancestors, the first ones to ever uh, show up on the earth. God, the text tells us, created Adam out of the dust, and he sees that the man is alone. He recognizes that it's not good, that, uh, that the man be alone. And uh, so the Lord brings every animal to Adam in order to name. But it's really just a tease for Adam because as all these animals are coming by, he, he realizes and recognizes that, that none of these animals are like him. The hippos and the rhino, rhinos and the giraffes, they don't look like him. They don't sound like him. They're, they're different. None of them can truly fulfill his need for companionship regardless of how cool dogs are. And so, here then God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, he says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And now in verse 21, he puts Adam into a deep sleep. He opens up his side, and he takes out a rib. He stitches him back up, and uh, creates the woman out of the rib. Now, in verse 22 in Genesis 2, it gives the illustration of God as a proud father bringing his daughter down the aisle to meet his bride for the very first time. And as Adam lays his eyes on Eve, the, uh, the response that he has is uh, odd to our ears, but it makes a lot of sense. He says, wow, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man, those donkeys and eels and fish, man, they can't do it for me. But this woman, holy buckets. This is awesome. And so on a, as a commentary then in verse 24, uh, the author of Genesis says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Why? Why should they become one flesh? Because when she was created, and before they came together, Adam was missing something. I mean, literally a rib, but he was missing something. Eve was literally made from the same stuff that Adam was. She was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. So when they came together in, in marriage and in this union that they have, they were completing themselves. Where Adam lacked, Eve was able to fill in. And where Eve uh, lacked, uh, Adam provided. It was the perfect complement to each other. And when they came side by, by side, as it were, in marriage, uh, the two fleshes united into one, ready to take on the world and God's directives as a unified body together. It was no longer him and her. It was now them in it for the rest of their lives in this bond of marriage. So, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The idea of holding fast is this idea of like uh, uh, glue. You know, glue, uh, gluing something together. You know, if you glue two pieces of paper together and you try to 
separate them back into what they once were, does that go very well? It doesn't. They both get torn apart, don't they? And that's the way it is with, with, uh, with divorce, that if they were to separate, it is like flesh being torn in, in two. It is such a strong bond that I ha- I've said it before, but I have had many people say to me that their divorce has been harder than any death that they've ever gone through. It is that strong of a bond. Now, returning to Ephesians, Paul has all that in mind now when he writes in verse 32, this mystery is profound. Now, remember when Paul uses the mystery, which he uses it seven times in the letter of Ephesians, so it's significant. Um, He's not talking about mystery in the way that you and I think about it. You know, you and I think about mystery as like, uh, you know, like a whodunit. You know, it's a, it's a crime to be solved. It's something to figure out. It, it's something that might not be figured out. But in Paul's language, a mystery is more of a secret from long ago that, uh, that is being disclosed. And here in verse 32, in the original language, there's an emphasis in it. Literally, he writes, this mystery or this secret is mega It is a mega mystery, is what Paul says here. It's huge. And what is that mystery? Verse 32 tells us. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul is saying that from the beginning of creation, marriage was not primarily meant to provide companionship for Adam and Eve. But it was primarily to set up an institution that would display the love of Christ for his church. And this wasn't an afterthought. This was his creation mandate. And what's crazy to think about is that Uh, The man Christ Jesus wouldn't show up for thousands of years, nor the church. But yet, long before all those things show up, God made marriage to show Jesus' love for the church. Just as a man is to leave his father and his mother, so Jesus left his father's side in order to win his bride. In his life and in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus sacrificed himself for the betterment of his bride, the church. In his person and work, Jesus has and is constantly working toward the holiness and the blamelessness of his church, his bride. He is constantly working at us being the the, the people and the marriages that he has called us to be and have. And just as a husband is to hold fast to his wife, so Jesus holds fast to us. Jesus tells us that he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. There is no one uh, else that is going to catch his eye. There's never a time in which he's going to look away and say, wow, that might be better. There's never a time in which he is going to look at us and say, They weren't worth the sacrifice. Jesus loves his church deeply. This is the vision that Jesus has for marriages. 
to reflect the relationship between him and the church, your marriage, my marriage, every marriage that has ever happened, whether it is a Christian marriage uh, or, or not, is meant for this. And friends, we don't always do it well, but this is the vision that, that Christ has for us in our marriages. And it's with that underpinning, that understanding of the gospel in marriage, that we can look at the roles and the how to do this. So let's start working our way back up now, in, starting in verse 25 with our second point. And that is, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. That's our second point today. Husbands, love your wives. Christ loves the church. Just as the bigger burden in the relationship is, is, uh, is uh, on Christ, there's a large burden on the part of the husband in the marriage. We see the responsibility beginning in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives. Now, if, if it were left at that, that'd be, that'd be great. What does that mean, though? And so he goes deeper. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wow, well, how does Christ love the church? He goes on in verse 25. He says uh, that he gave himself up for her. And so here in verse 25, we see a radically different kind of love that the culture thinks about, when it thinks about marriage and love and all of those kinds of things. In our culture, love is more of a selfish kind of thing. It is typically based on emotion. It is quantified by how the other person makes you feel or what the other person does for you. Uh, ask any engaged couple, any newly married couple, and hopefully, you know, some of us that have been married for a while, uh, why they love their partner, and more than likely, you're going to get a response that says something like, well, I really like how they make me feel. I really like the kind of person that I become when I'm around them. I love who I am when I'm with them. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's good to have those feelings and emotions. They don't always stick around. But friends, that's not love. That's infatuation. Instead, uh, love is not an emotion, it's, it's not a noun, it is a verb. It is a state of living that is always working for the betterment of the other person. How do you love that person? Why do you love that person? Because I can do things for them that make them be uh, who they are. With that in mind, Paul gives us a lengthy illustration of how husbands ought to love their wives by comparing it to how Jesus loves the church. Let's look again in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If there was anyone ever in history that has a right to be demanding, it is Jesus. If there's anyone ever in history that has a right to be served, it is Jesus. From all eternity past, he has been and is God. 
Here is the one whom all creation, everything that we see, even the things that are unseen, were made through him and for him. Here is the one who holds all things together, Colossians tells us, by the power of his word. In his incarnation, in taking on flesh, he lived sinlessly. Think about that. Jesus never had one thought word, or deed that was out of line. How crazy is that? If there was anyone that deserved to, get, to be served, it was him. But yet, his modus operandi, his M.O. was set like flint. Everything he did was for us and for the glory of the Father. He lived sinlessly, for us. He could have done whatever he wanted to, but yet Philippians tells us that he set all of those things aside so that he could be like us and that he could live for us. He gave himself up quite literally for us. When he went to the cross, he gave that which was most precious to him, his very life for us. Why did he do that? Verse 26 tells us that he might sanctify her, that is the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, we could spend a long time, we could spend all afternoon going through every one of those amazing clauses that what, what Jesus does for the church, but we can summarize it like this, that Jesus gave himself up for his bride, us, the church, in order to make us ready for him. He gave himself up for us so that we can be presented to him without blemish, Spotless, not because of who we are, what we've done, but because of what he has done. He gave himself up for us, the church, so that sin would no longer be a barrier between us and him. He gave himself up for, for his church so that when he comes, he can redeem uh, a bride. And he'll see the church walking down the aisle as if God was bringing Eve to Adam. And he will say, wow, that is what I gave my life for. I gave my bone and I gave my flesh for her and now we are finally united as one flesh. Me as the head and the church as the body. Fellas, this isn't easy. And I certainly am not anywhere near perfect on this. But this means leading in the home sacrificially. Can you, in your current role as a husband, be characterized as one who is more self-focused in your time and your hobbies, your priorities and your care, and maybe even in your own spiritual walk? Or can you be uh, more seen as working toward making your wife become her best self in Christ? To lead your children to know Jesus. And to work to that end. This means leading her in character. 
It means leading her in Christ-likeness. It means providing an example of Christ day in and day out. This is not easy. This takes work. It means taking inventory. What needs to change? What needs to change in your attitude? And how you react to her? What needs to change in your priorities? What needs to change in how you lead spiritually? What do you need to give up and set aside? Maybe for a season. This is not easy. In verse 28, Paul now returns this idea of the one flesh union in our role as husbands. He says in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why? Because again, in Genesis 2.24, that they become one. Your body is not your own anymore. You are in a one flesh union. You owe it to her to take care of her as much as you would yourself. For no one ever hated his flesh, it says, but nourishes and cherishes it. You know, fellas, we might not be, you know, content with the physique that we currently have. But you still eat food. You still nourish yourself. Hopefully you take showers. Hopefully you uh, go to the doctor for preventative care. Or when something doesn't feel right, you, uh, you go and get it checked out. Why? Because you care. And so we ought to nourish and cherish our marriage just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And so, fellas, if we want to be who Jesus wants us to be, if we want to have the kind of marriage that Jesus wants us to have, then some things might need to change. Some of us right now, we're going through our marriages and we're totally passive. We're jellyfish or doormats. It's time to step up. Or maybe on the other end of the pendulum, maybe some of us are more like drill sergeants. If that's where you're at, when you're in the mindset of, it's all about, woman, go get me my chips. That needs a change. It's time to stand down, knock it off. That's not being a man. That's being a boy. You're not a simp if you give yourself up for your wife and your kids. You're being more like Jesus. And it's time to man up. So husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. And now finally, in number three, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Uh, and so it, it's, it's here now that uh, the Bible and the culture kind of uh, butt heads a bit. Verses 22 through 24 are not fashionable in our contemporary culture. However, when we take into consideration again, verses 31 through 33, namely that the purpose of marriage is to represent the the love of Jesus for the church and the church's love for, for Jesus, then we cannot get away from the fact that there are uh, different functions and roles within the marriage. Men and women are different. And they're differentiated in the correspondence that Paul lays out. It does not mean that one is greater than the other. It is clear in Scripture and it's clear in experience that men and women are on equal footing with God in worth and dignity and honor, but different in role and function. That is not a cultural construct. It is the order of creation. 
With that in mind now, Paul says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So keeping in mind everything we've already said, we can infer here that it is the responsibility of the husbands to lead in the marriage. And what does that mean? It means that he is to provide the tone, the direction, the spiritual development. He has the ultimate responsibility of everything that happens. He is ultimately accountable for everything that happens. Notice that Paul, though, is not saying that he calls the shots like a dictator. He's not one that just comes in and says, I'm the man, this is how it's going to be. The husband is to lovingly work with his wife. He is to take her feelings and her opinions into, into account. They can make decisions together, but yet he bears the responsibility for the, the result. It's helpful to note here that this submission is voluntary on her part. If this husband is uh, not leading in a Christ-like manner, if uh, he is leading her into sin or unwise decisions, it's not only okay for the wife to not go along with it, it is right to not go along with it. But if the husband is leading according to the call of Christ, it's her responsibility to yield to his leadership. Notice the manner in which wives are to do this. He says, uh, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now think about that analogy for just a second. Here in the church, here in Emmanuel, or any church that you have ever uh, maybe been a part of, the church does not set the tone or the direction. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate senior pastor of the church. We're to follow his lead. Now, if the church were to say to Jesus, yeah, yeah, I mean, I hear what you say. I mean, yeah, it's, it's plain in this word, but yeah, we don't see it that way. We're going to go into a different direction. How would Jesus react to that? I was once in a church where I had one gal that did something that wasn't necessarily sin, but didn't run it by the elder board. And so when we said to her, um, you know, not that what you did was, was wrong, it was, it was perfectly okay, but could you just run it by the elder board the next time you do it so that we're not, you know, taken aback? And her, her response to that was, well, we don't need to ask your permission for anything. Okay. Well, imagine if we said that to Jesus. Jesus, I see your word plainly here, you know, I don't agree with it. And so, I don't need to ask your permission, I don't need to do this. How would Jesus react to that? Revelation 2 and 3 is pretty clear that he'll take his lampstand from the church. And indeed, he has in many denominations and churches in our contemporary culture right now. In verse 23, Paul gives the grounding or the reason for this yielding on the part of the wife. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Again, we have this idea here of this, this one flesh union within marriage. And, and Paul uses the imagery of, of a head and a body. A head being the part that, that uh, provides life and direction and vision and, and hearing. And again, the leadership aspect of the relationship and when you take you certainly can take that analogy too far but at least we have to see here again that there is a parallel that we have to pay attention to 
There is no dispute that Christ is the head of the church. This is his bride. He purifies it. He sanctifies it. And the church sees the beauty of that love and that leadership and that care and says, I'm on board. This is great. Fellas, if you're being what you're called to be, it makes this model so much more attractive to your wife. And ladies, my guess is that many of you fall into a, a few different camps when it comes to this. You may bristle at this, and I understand that. You may be mad at some of the things that I've said here. But remember, the goal is to restore marriage to what it was meant to be. If the purpose of marriage from the beginning was to display the relationship between Christ and the church, then we have to see that egalitarianism is a result of the fall. There's no other way around it. For some of you, the doctrine grieves you because this is what you've wanted for your marriage and this isn't what you have. Maybe you have a husband that doesn't do anything. Maybe you are married to a brute. Keep praying. Keep encouraging. Keep displaying Christ's love, uh, the, the love of the church for Christ to him. In either case, verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And I understand that this may be foreign to some of us, maybe even abrasive. But I have to believe that God's word was written for his glory and for our benefit. And so if we arrange our marriages to fit God's model and purpose for marriage, then our marriages will be happier, they'll be healthier, they'll be stronger, more satisfying, more God-glorifying, more gospel-proclaiming. Such marriages will make our church healthier and stronger. Friends, we can be the Jaegers. And we can be the Jaegers because we as the church are inseparable from our husband, Jesus. We can be inseparable from our spouse. We can be living and loving together, taking on the roles that we were called to by Christ, thus making us and each other more and more fit for that day. When Christ comes to redeem his bride and he sees the bride walking down the aisle and he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Friends, let's order our marriages to honor God. Let's pray. Father.